My parents both took Latin in high school, which prompted me to take Latin in high school because my dad loved to throw out this phrase, carpe diem, and he would say it like it was a marching order. And that's because in Latin, it means seize the day. And isn't that so like my dad? Seize the day. But it means to make the most out of the opportunities before you. Or don't miss this. Don't let this pass you by. Now, my mom loved to play the piano. And she loved to have me sing as she played the piano. And she'd be like, Cheryl, come in here. And she wanted me to learn one song especially, and it was Open Your Heart by Denise Abrams. And the lyrics went something like, he may not pass this way again. So open your heart and let him come in. Jesus will take all your sorrow and sin. And that thought, he may not pass this way again. Three times in Hebrews, Hebrews 3.7, Hebrews 3.15, and Hebrews 5.5, 5, tell us today, if you hear his voice, today is the day. All of us have regrets over lost opportunities. Maybe you put other things in, in front of that opportunity Maybe it was household duties. No, I want to go, but I really need to do the laundry. I really need to clean my house. I really need to do my spring cleaning. Or you had pressing obligations. I really want to go, but I've got a dentist appointment. Or I really want to go, but I promised this person that I'd go walking with them. Or maybe it was just inconvenient, and you put your convenience above that opportunity or your own physical need. You're just, I want to go, but I'm so tired. I'm just too tired, or I'm too busy, or I'm too hungry. And in this way, you've missed some of the most significant moments of your life. When my father was recovering from his stroke, it was a beautiful day like today, and the mountains were just frosted with snow. And he had to take a walk every day. And I called him up and I said, Dad, today is such a beautiful day for a walk. And he said, I know it, baby. Come walk with me. And I said, oh, Dad, I can't. You know, I've got this and I've got that obligation. I didn't know that I'd never, ever get to walk with my dad again. I thought sometime, someplace, we'll walk and we'll look at those frosted mountains again. I had no idea how short the time was. Another time, I used to take him dinner every Friday night. We'd have this meal together. And just about two weeks before he went home to see Jesus, I, you know, made the meal. And making the meal meant I took a whole bunch of my dishes over to his house in boxes and i I wanted to get those dishes clean because you know how food can kind of get stuck on the sides and then it's harder to get off. And I was kind of putting everything together to leave his house. And he looked at me and he said, oh, baby, just stay a little later. Dad, I'd really like to, but you know how the food sticks onto the side of the dishes and it makes such a mess? Looking back, I could have thrown those dishes away with all their little food particles. 
We all have those regrets, don't we? Those could have, should have, would have, never did. There was a commercial in my time, which means a hundred years ago when television was first invented, where these people would hit their heads and go, I could have had a V8. As if people would choose vegetable juice over cookies. But it was a famous commercial and everyone would go around going, I could have had a V8. And it was just a silly saying. But the idea is today, as the Spirit speaks, as the Spirit gives us opportunity, it's the time. Today is the day to look for Jesus. Today is the day to invite Jesus into your house. Today is the day to invest the gifts that he has given you. Today is the day to give him whatever he has need of. Today is the day to shout his praises and declare him king. Today is the day to know that he is here and to receive the day of your visitation. And today is the day to allow him to cleanse our hearts. There's that saying, never put off for tomorrow what needs to be done today. Luke 19 presents us with a series of opportunities offered to those in Israel. But in the same way, the Spirit of God is speaking to us, opening up these same opportunities to us. But we must carpe diem. We must seize the day. In Luke 19, 1 through 10, we meet Zacchaeus. And I don't know about you, but I used to sing this song all through Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed his way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. And that's the story of Zacchaeus. He's the chief tax collector. And he's hated even more than other tax collectors because he is the chief. He's short in stature and his wealth has come by extortion, deceit, and treachery. But he hears that Jesus is walking through town, and Jesus is. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the last time, where he will be arrested, condemned, crucified, and rise again. Now, Zacchaeus must have heard about Jesus. Maybe he heard the story of Bartimaeus, who was on the street in Jericho and heard that the Lord was passing by and began to shout out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And maybe Zacchaeus thought, wow, I want to see this man, this prophet, who has mercy on a blind man. Perhaps he heard about Jesus, that he sat down and he ate with publicans and tax collectors and sinners. And this was his hope. If he could just see Jesus, the man who even receives sinners and tax collectors. So Zacchaeus goes ahead of the crowd and climbs up a sycamore tree so he can get a good look at Jesus. But something unexpected happened to Zacchaeus because Jesus did not just pass his way. Zacchaeus was not just able to steal a glimpse of Jesus, but 
we're told by Luke that Jesus, that Jesus walked right up to that tree, looked up, and as the song goes, called him by name, Zacchaeus. That it wasn't just that Jesus received tax collectors. He knew this one by name. And he told Zacchaeus, not only do I know you by name, but I want an invitation to your house. I am going to your house. I must go to your house to dine, to become one with you symbolically. Now, the crowd reaction is not favorable because Zacchaeus is notoriously a sinner, someone who missed the mark. His disapproval rating is high. And the crowd looking at Jesus said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Maybe they were personally cheated by Zacchaeus. You know, sometimes we can get in our heart and mind certain people we don't want saved. We really don't want them to hear the gospel because they've been naughty, like really naughty to us. And, and this would be hard for the self-righteous to see Jesus actually going into this notorious sinner's house and forgiving him and restoring him. Aren't you blessed, though, that Jesus doesn't care about his approval ratings? He doesn't do what men want him to do, but he does what is right and what is good. Transformation takes place when Jesus enters Zacchaeus' house. There is repentance, there is relinquishment, and there is restoration. He gives back what he has taken by deceit and returns fourfold what he has taken by extortion. This is evidence of Zacchaeus' salvation. And Jesus says, I've restored him. This is now, again, a son of Abraham. Think about it. Rome had stolen his identity, had stolen his nationality, had stolen his birthright by sin. But now the Son of Man, with his intention to seek and to save those who are lost, has gone after Zacchaeus and restored him. But Zacchaeus had to seize the day. What if he had figured on Jesus passing again? Well, he's been through Jericho before. Obviously, he likes this place and he travels this way from Galilee to Jerusalem. I'll catch him next time around, not knowing that this would be the last time Jesus would go through Jericho. What if he used excuses such as, I'm too hated. I really don't want to be around that multitude. I'm too short. I'm too busy cheating people. That would be a good one. I'm too unworthy. But he pushed all the excuses aside and he went to see Jesus. For some people, they just need to get an honest look at Jesus. Some people just need to look at Jesus. I have a, a relative who is always telling us, I'm really open to Jesus. But she reads all the books against Jesus. You know people like that? It's like, could you kind of read some of these other books that will give you an honest look at Jesus? Because 
Those who take an honest look at Jesus will find that Jesus knows your name and he wants an invitation into your house that he might bring you to repentance for the sake of restoration. That's our Jesus. But we must seize the day when the opportunity comes. We must seize the day in his word to get a good look at Jesus, in his church, in his people, in praise, in prayers. When we do, we will find that he knows our name, he comes directly to us, and he invites himself into our life. Now, moving on, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, Jesus tells a parable. And the parable's purpose is for those who think that Jesus right then is going to set up his kingdom on earth. This is the day that they've been waiting for, Jesus to set up his kingdom. And they don't realize that Jesus is going to go to his father where he will receive the greater kingdom and be crowned. It's that episode that we read in Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and he receives the authority and the crown and the praise of heaven before he goes back to earth to be the king that topples every kingdom of this world. So because those that Jesus is with need to be prepared for what is about to come, He's going to give them instruction on what they are to do while he is in heaven receiving the authority of heaven. So Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman who is about to go into a far country to receive a crown, return and power to rule. And this nobleman calls 10 of his servants together and he gives each a mina, which is a coin worth three months wages. And he tells them, do business until I return. Then he leaves for an unspecified time. Any of this sound familiar? Can you relate it to the life of Jesus? When he leaves, the citizens that he left hate him. They send a hostile delegation to say to him, we will not have this man reign over us. But in the meantime, his servants are left to do business. Now, The nobleman returns, having received the kingdom, and he calls his servants to account. The first servant comes forward and says, Master, your mina. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say my mina, the mina you gave me, but your mina has gained 10. And he is commended. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now take authority over 10 cities. The second servant comes and he says, Lord, I've used your mina to gain five. And he is given five cities. Then another servant comes forward and he says, here's your little mina back. And the nobleman says, what happened? Well, I know that you're an austere man and you, you reap where you have not sown. And I was afraid of you. So I wrapped it in this handkerchief and I buried it so that I could give it back to you intact when you came again. 
The nobleman is angry with his servant for not investing the mina. His excuse is really no excuse at all because if the servant was really afraid of the master and knew that he was austere, the very least he would have done is to have invested it in the bank. He wouldn't have hoarded it and buried it. He should have done something, anything with it. Then this servant is condemned. He's even called wicked for hiding and hoarding that which was entrusted to him. He is judged by his own mouth, and his mina is taken away from him and given to the one who earned ten. Those watching this protest. Wait, why are you giving that mina to the one who already has ten? And the nobleman answers, For I say to you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. After dealing with his own servants, the nobleman then deals with those who did not want him as king. Now the apostle Peter talks about judgment beginning at the house of the Lord before it goes to the world. 1 Peter 4.17 When Jesus returns, he will ask us what we did with what he has entrusted to us. You see, now is the time to invest what he has entrusted to us. We have an obligation to recognize the gifts that he has entrusted to us and to use them for his kingdom and glory. What are your gifts? Your gifts are Your entrustments are his word. He's giving you the word. Are you, are you putting it in your heart? Are you investing it in your heart? Are you investing it in your children? My Aunt E.C., on every letter she ever sent me in college, and she sent me quite a few, one a week, it would say, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. There was not a letter she sent me that didn't contain that scripture. She implanted that word into my life. I have a woman in my life that uses um, phone texts. I still can't make it a verb, okay? Because it, when I grew up, it was just a noun. So I can't say texting because it wasn't in my Webster's Dictionary. But she sends me these texts with scriptures. And I thought, what an ingenious way to use a cell phone. Yes, cell phones can be used for the glory of God. Not Brian's. Because it's used to ignore me. (laughs) But think about the things at our disposal that God has entrusted us with. His word, prayer, friends, money. Some of us, some of us not. House, energy, personality, whatever your personality is. Some of you have been entrusted with a quiet peaceful personality. Thank you. Thank God for you. That's an entrustment. Just your personality's entrustment. That's a gift from God. Children. Children are an entrustment. Talents. Whatever that is. Maybe it's cooking. Maybe it's cleaning. I had a friend, past tense because she doesn't live close, but she had the gift of cleaning. She would show up at my house to show up. I go, I'm here because God put it on my heart to clean your house. And I'd be like, come in, take over. 
do all that God has placed on your heart. I remember one time she came over and she said, I'm here to clean your house. I said, oh, I'm going out with my parents. She goes, go. I came back. My floor has never sparkled like it did when she came over. One of my favorite people to invite into my house. But that was her gift. She would use it. She'd just show up at different people's houses and say, I want to clean your house. Some people would say, that's weird. Go away. And they didn't end up with a wondrously clean house. But that was a gift I never refused. And it was beautiful. But Romans 12, 6, the Apostle Paul says, we have differing gifts according to the grace given to us by God. Let us use our gifts. Tomorrow may not allow you to use your gift. You might not. I, I used to have the gift of singing. Now I have the gift of croaking. It's kind of a use it or lose it. In fact, seriously, I'll go to hit notes or do a harmony that I used to, and I'll be like, and I'm like, oh, that was not pleasant. It wasn't pleasant to me, and obviously the people around me are kind of going, oh, poor Cheryl. Don't hide it, don't hoard it, but use what God has given you. And you'll find out when you step out in whatever gifts God has given you, he will add to it. Start with something small and watch God multiply it. Now, in Luke 19, 28 through 34, we see the opportunity to give to Jesus. I can't begin to enumerate to you how many times this little donkey has spoken to me, that this has been the word of the Lord to me. So here we are. Jesus is on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He's near a village and he sends his disciples into that village and tells them exactly what they will find. You'll find a colt tethered to its mother. Lose the colt. You'll be asked, why are you doing this? Why are you loosing him? And this is what you're to answer. The Lord has need of it. The disciples go into the village and Luke tells us they find it exactly as Jesus said. As they obey these specific instructions, they find everything happens just as Jesus said. They find the colt. They start loosing it. They're asked, why are you loosing the colt? They answer, the Lord has need of it. And those who own the colt, let it go. Now, in our life, there will be loosings. Either you will be the one loosed. You might be loosed from a job, loosed from your security. As this cult was loosed from his security, his home, his people, his town, his mother, there might be loosings in your life because the Lord has need of you. We call them firings, removals. If you were in England, you would call it being made redundant. That doesn't mean you're going to just repeat yourself for the rest of your life. In England, that means you're fired. And we tend to look at them at the, as the end, as rejection, as I'm no good. Not realizing the Lord has need of you now or something being taken away from you. You might be the one who's loosing the cult. You might be the one saying, you know, I need help in this ministry. You might 
be the one saying, I have to let you go. You're fired. You might be the one giving the mission call or the the pastor. You might be the one being blamed for the loosing. But you're doing it because the Lord has need of it. Maybe you as a parent have had to loose your child. Maybe you've had to loose a prodigal that they might come to the end of, of their way. It might be glutted with the world that they might awake and come to their senses to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're the one who's had to do the loosing and let it go because the Lord has need of him. I've had to do the loosings with my children. I'm telling you, I would love a compound where I could visit my grandchildren any time I wanted to, instead of having to FaceTime them where their attention span is like three minutes and then you hear one of them go, do we have to keep looking at grandma? B? <laughs> no, go. I'm loosing you. Have a wonderful life. But there's this loosing. God is using my son so incredibly up in Santa Rosa that whenever I go up there, I cry because I raised him and I know what God had to work with and how majestic God's work is. And to see the miracle of my son and I lose him because the Lord has need of him. My daughter, my oldest daughter serves with her husband in New York and God is using them. He has need of them. Maybe you're the one who has to do the untethering and the loosing and you're untethering it yourself. Or maybe you're the one who has to let go of the cult. You're the one that the cult is being taken care of. And you have to let it go because the Lord has need of it. God has greater purposes. And his purposes require a loosing from our present situation. There is an untethering of those things that hold us to the post. That hold us to what was our security and our past. We must be loosed from those things and taken to Jesus. We like the tethers. We would rather stay bound. We know these surroundings. We'd rather stay tethered to the things, family, friends, house, car. We get so tethered to our physical circumstances and surroundings. But the loosing is for the greater purpose of the Lord because he wants to use us. And he wants to use that which we have tethered for his glory as part of the process to show the world that he is king and savior. Again, what we call removal, firing, rejection is what God calls loosing. Moving on, opportunity to proclaim and praise. Luke 19 through 35 through 40. We don't always have the opportunity for praise. I never appreciated worship so much until after my fourth child was old enough to go to the nursery. I remember coming into church and sitting down and going, oh, so this is what the body of Christ sounds like. Why, this is beautiful, and I can add my voice to it. And it was so wonderful. But we had this little system where if your child was in distress, a number would pop up. And I'm looking at those numbers going, those parents really need to get their children only to realize my number was up. And I had to go get Braden. But you know, we sometimes really don't appreciate the opportunity to sing. 
and to praise the Lord. When I was on the mission field, I began to appreciate Bible studies and fellowship because I always had Sunday school or nursery duty. And we only had one service, not two services. And I remember the the opportunities I had to actually sit in the sanctuary and hear the word. Or somebody would send me a cassette tape and I would be able to listen to another woman speak into my life. And it was such a blessing. Somebody had the audacity to send me all my mom's cassette tapes. I love that person. I mean, most people just think that, you know, Cheryl Smith gets to hear Kay Smith all the time. But when I was in England, I didn't. And somebody sent me the the women's Bible studies. And I remember just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. But you see, sometimes we think that we're always going to have the opportunity to gather with other believers. And we can take church and fellowship for granted and we neglect it. And we don't know when sickness will rob us or when an obligation will come into our life that will actually take this opportunity away. And if we don't seize the day and really appreciate that opportunity to praise the Lord. On what we call Palm Sunday, the disciples brought the colt to Jesus. They put their garments on the colt. Jesus sat on this little donkey. Now, donkeys were ridden by kings in those days when they wanted to communicate that they were coming in peace. Now, we know, according to Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the next time Israel sees their king, he will be riding on a white horse with righteousness and truth and justice. Horses were reserved in those days to show aggression or absolute authority when a king had come to take possession of what was his by rights. But Jesus is coming on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal, to show that he is coming in peace, that coming to him and receiving his kingdom is voluntary at this moment. He begins to ride down the Mount of Olives toward the east gate and the people gather along each side of the road and they lay their garments down in front of his path. It's a sign of homage, but it's also a desire to have their garment tread underfoot by Jesus. Can you imagine picking up that garment again? Like, I'll never wash this garment again. Never. Jesus rode on this garment. It will be a testimony forever. See this? This is what Jesus donkey rode on when he rode into Jerusalem. Others grab leafy branches and they lay them on the path in front of Jesus. And they begin to proclaim according to Luke 19 verse 37, his wonderful work. Can you imagine the crowd? Perhaps one is saying, he gave me sight. Maybe even Bartimaeus is there. Thou son of David, who gave me sight? Maybe someone else says, he cleansed my brother's leprosy. Another, he made me walk. I am leaping right now because Jesus. Another one saying, I'm mute. And the whole reason I can shout the praise today is because he gave me a voice. You see, these who are shouting his praises are seizing the day. They are 
speaking out loud the testimony and proclaiming the work of Jesus in their life. Another might be saying, he delivered me from seven demons. I think you know who that might be. Another saying, he healed me from my disease. I am no longer tormented. I'm no longer an outcast. He accepted me. I was a tax collector and sinner, but he restored me as a son of Abraham. Maybe, and we're told in John, 7, uh, John chapter 12 that Lazarus is among there. those. And many came just to see Lazarus and to hear his testimony, which was very unique. He raised me from the dead. And they shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic word. Psalm 118 was considered by every rabbi every teacher in Israel, to be a messianic psalm. And so those crying out, saying, Son of David, are saying, rightful king of Israel. Those who are saying, Hosanna, are saying, anointed one, or the Messiah. Those who are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is to proclaim that he is coming in the anointing, the service, the representation and authority of the Lord. He is God's sign, representative, power, and authority to us. And they are saying peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are proclaiming the terms of God's covenant, the agreement that is coming through this Messiah. And these echo the very terms of peace that the angels came offering at the birth of Jesus. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. How? Through the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus alone has come with God's terms of peace and glory. Now, during the ministry of Jesus before this day, remember how he never allowed men to publish the fact that he was the Messiah? He silenced the demons He told those he healed, don't tell anybody. He told the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, don't share what you've seen with anyone until I've risen from the dead. Now he allows public acclamation because this is the day that the Lord has made. It's a direct fulfillment of Daniel 9.25. When the angel tells Daniel, this is how to know the day of your Messiah, the anointed one. For from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the Messiah shall be seven sevens and 62 sevens or 483 days. We know that on March 4th, 445 BC, according to Nehemiah chapter two, verses five through eight, the command went forth from Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You count from that day, 483 days, and it will bring you to April 6th, the day that Jesus did this, made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. They should have known. They should have known in this, their day. This was the day that all Israel was to be anticipating. Not only did God tell them the very day, and just two weeks before this, there had been a march in Jerusalem by the rabbis and the priests and the religious elite to say that God had failed them, 
because the right of capital punishment had been taken away from the religious elite and given to Rome alone. And so they wanted to say God had failed rather than looking for that very day for their Messiah. And not only did God tell them the very day, but he told them exactly what it would look like. You'll recognize your king this way. He'll be humble. He will be a descendant of David. He will be riding on a colt, a donkey that has never been ridden on before. It will happen in Jerusalem. He will be righteous. He will be victorious. And the people who participated, who seized the day, rejoiced, recognized. This is not the fickle crowd that calls for his crucifixion. I've heard that over again. Now, look how fickle they are. Just, you know, five days later, they're calling for his crucifixion. No. This is the crowd that the Pharisees were intimidated by and afraid of when they said, do not seize him during the day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Remember, they had to find a secluded place, a secret place. They had to do everything they did under the cloak of darkness. And we'll get into this more when we get to Luke chapter 22. They had to do everything under the cloak of darkness. Because the people would have caused an uproar. In John chapter 12, when they're, the Pharisees and religious elite are looking at this, they exclaim, we've got to do something now because the whole world is going after him. In Luke twenty three twenty seven, when Jesus is crucified, or actually when he's publicly um, walking down the streets, publicly condemned and walking down the streets in Jerusalem holding his cross, we're told that a great multitude followed him to the cross, mourning and lamenting feeling helpless. In Luke 23, 48, we're told that the whole crowd came together at the cross, feeding their chests. The Pharisees called from the crowd as Jesus is being publicly acclaimed. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. When they use the word here, disciples, it means followers or those who are praising you. They're referring to the whole crowd, like rebuke the people that like you and are praising you is exactly what they're saying. And Jesus says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Nature recognized their liberator and they were ready to proclaim it. My father, whenever he would take a trip to Israel, we would always do that walk down the Mount of Olives and you can see the East Gate as you walk down. You can see the, the sight that Jesus saw when he wept. But my dad would say, make sure you pick up a stone because you never know when it might cry out praise in your house. <laughs> he used to call them the singing stones. And so everybody would pick up a rock and just like sing to me. You know, you've heard of pet rocks. These are called singing rocks. But today is the day to proclaim his praise. Today is the day to proclaim what he has done in our lives. Today is the day to proclaim him as king. Don't neglect or put off this day of proclamation. Today is the day. Now, as we move on into Luke 19 verses 41 through 44, we are to know the day of visitation. Ever miss an appointment? 
It's the worst feeling ever to miss an appointment. There are the times that you just forgot, like, oh no, I was supposed to be having dinner with so-and-so, or I was supposed to have lunch, or we were supposed to do this, or you're on your way. I remember we were asked to speak in uh, Carson when we lived in Vista. Brian and I were supposed to uh, do the Women and Men's Fellowship Respect, anyway, both of us. And uh, we got on the freeway and we got all the way to Crown Valley. And from then on, from Crown Valley to the next street, it took us an hour and a half. And we were literally sitting in traffic realizing we were supposed to be teaching right then. Ordinarily, that would be like an hour and a half from Vista to Carson. And we had planned, we had given it two hours and we just sat in traffic and just watching like the time go by and go, well, I should be teaching, you should be teaching. At that point, we had a cell phone and it was like this big. It was one of the first. And we called them and said, we're not moving. We are stuck in traffic and nothing's happening. And I remember just that feeling of just missing it. Just like, I can't believe I had my little message to teach. I was all ready, but we missed that day. Or maybe you've missed an appointment because something else came up and you weren't able to get there. But Jerusalem missed its appointment with Jesus. We talked earlier about the specific day given by the angel to Daniel, what it would look like, told to Zechariah, the day when their Messiah, the son of David, the king, the great shepherd of the sheep, would come to Jerusalem. And Jesus, as he's coming down, pauses as everyone's proclaiming and praising, Jesus pauses in the midst of this acclamation to cry, to weep, to visibly weep, audibly weep over the destruction that will seize Jerusalem because they rejected their king, because they did not recognize who it was, And what he was coming with, the things that make for your peace, the terms of peace and blessing that he came with. And from that moment on, until he would come again, these things would be hidden from their eyes. Paul talks about the veil that's over the eyes of those in Israel and how that veil can only be removed by Jesus Christ. But the days that would result from their missed opportunity. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Interestingly enough, Eusebius, who is an early church historian, speaks of this flight to Pella. And he says that the believers, the Christians in Jerusalem, recognized, recognized through the prophecy of Jesus when Rome began to build their siege walls that they needed to flee. They remembered his words and there came, as they were praying, a short reprieve when Gallus, the main general, pulled back and the believers left in mass, remembering the words of Jesus. Let me read. I'm going to quote Eusebius. 
The whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by divine revelation, given to men of approved piety there before the war, removed from the city and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pella. Epiphanes also attested to the Christian escape, according to Bible scholar Adam Clark. The latter wrote, this is, um, this is Eusebius now, and his writings were called Epiphanies. It is very remarkable that not a single Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, though there were many there when Cestius Gallus invested the city. And had he persevered in the siege, he would soon have rendered himself master of it. But when he unexpectedly and unaccountably raised the siege, the Christians took that opportunity to escape. As Vespian was approaching with his army, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places beyond the River Jordan. And so they all marvelously escaped the general shipwreck of their country. Not one of them perished. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because they recognized the day. The believers who recognized the day of the visitation escaped the carnage. It was said by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that Jerusalem fell not from the outside, but from within. The zealots turned on the religious elite and murdered them, murdered Jonathan, the high priest, and Anas, the high priest, and then turned on each other. On the leading citizens demanding their money, houses, children to fight against the Romans. We are to recognize the day that we are living in. These are the last days. And more than ever, we need to seize the opportunities that the Lord gives us. How are we going to recognize them? If we're in the word of the Lord, if we're obeying our Bibles and the word of the Lord, we will recognize the day. Finally, Luke 19, 45 through 48. Today's the day to let the Lord cleanse your heart. It's hard to admit we're wrong, isn't it? But unless we confess our sins, unless we agree with God's diagnosis, unless we let his conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit do its work, we will never be healed. We'll never be cleansed. We will continue to carry that Thing with us. Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem, and here we see a different side of Jesus than we have seen previously. This is the one that takes the authority. This is the one that is upset even to the point of violence. He goes into the temple courtyard and he drives out those who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He overturns the seats of those who sell the doves. Malachi 3.1, here is another sign. And it says, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So God even told his prophet Malachi 
There's going to be a day of visitation at the temple, a day of cleansing and purifying. Jesus announces, it is written, my house is to be a house of, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus at this point takes ownership and authority. He cleanses the temple of the merchandising that distressed the spirit of God. Now, when you go to Israel, you will see at what used to be the court of the temple, what is called the bazaars of Annas. Annas being the high priest at that time, he will later condemn Jesus to death. As we go on in our study, we'll see this in Luke chapter 23, his condemnation of Jesus to death. And some say it was this, when Jesus overthrew his business practices in Jerusalem. Now the remains of the bazaars of Annas are still visible today. It was owned by this high priest and it made him so rich that he had a palace in Jerusalem. But this was a form of extortion which oppressed those very people that had come to worship the Lord. It oppressed them and it made it made the worship of God very, very difficult for the common person. And when you look at this, you realize that Annas was no different than Zacchaeus, with this exception. Zacchaeus recognized his sin and repented. Annas knew his sin, but sought to destroy Jesus. They did not just want to remove him or exile him or put him in a dungeon or jail. We're told in the scripture they wanted to destroy, to kill, to publicly annihilate in the most painful way. That is what this word destroy means. Yet at this point, they are helpless. They know they are guilty. And in verse 48, the people are very attentive to to Jesus. Or as the... New Living Translation puts it, they hang on his every word. Today, Jesus wants to claim your heart as his very own. He wants to take authority over your heart in order to make it his house. He wants your heart to be a house of prayer, of constant communication, being lifted up to the Lord, of intercession, praying for others, praying for the nations, praying for people. But he must cleanse us. And we must agree with this diagnosis. Yes, those bazaars, that merchandising, that table, that chair, they should not have been in my heart. And we must let them overturn and cleanse. We have to confess. We have to agree that these things do not belong. If you put him off, your heart will harden against his purposes, against his people, And ultimately against him. And these things will be hidden from your sight. Going back again to Hebrews 3 verses 7 through 8. Today, if you hear his voice. Today, do not harden your heart. Today is the day to agree to his cleansing. And you never know when that today is going to happen. For me, it always happens right in the middle of a fight with Brian when I'm winning. That the Lord says, Cheryl, repent. 
Tell him. He should be the first. He's my spiritual leader. Then I'll repent. I'll just follow him. And the Lord says, Cheryl, do you want a hard heart? No, I repent. And then I have to look at Brian and go, And then Brian always goes, you're sorry, aren't you? I'm trying to be. You know, it's this thing. I've got to allow the Lord to constantly, continually wash me out and cleanse me to confess. You know, they say what spiritual growth is. You know how much you're growing in the Lord by the shortage of time between the conviction and the confession. If the Lord convicts and it takes you three weeks and four days to confess, then you need to grow. If you, if you feel the conviction right away, you go, sorry guys, this isn't right. The, the Lord's just convicting me. Forgive me for saying that. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to say that. Then you know, then you know, You're growing. You're doing really well spiritually. The promise is to those who confess. Those who confess, John 1, 9, God is faithful to forgive and to cleanse. I love, not only does he forgive it, he cancels that debt, but he cleanses. He gets away that propensity to do that again. You know what I mean? You know how like if you don't get the mold completely in a cupboard, any of you ever have mold? I have. Thank you for that hand. Those who have had mold, do you know how like if you don't get it with the bleach, you don't get it completely and eradicated, it will start growing again, same place, and you'll get that awful musty feeling. But God comes in and he eradicates. He cleanses so the mold can't grow from that place anymore. Today is the day to seize the day. Sounds a little repetitive, but it works. Don't miss one more opportunity to see Jesus. Do whatever it takes to see Jesus, to invite him or accept his invitation into your home, to invest what he has given for his glory, to be used for his purposes, to be untethered, to be loosed, to proclaim his praises and the wondrous things he's done for you publicly and with the body of Christ, to recognize and rejoice in your day of visitation and to accept his cleansing that you might be under his authority and be his dwelling place, a house of prayer for all nations. Carpe diem. Seize the day.